This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp, the online counseling service dedicated to connecting you with a licensed counselor to help you overcome whatever stands in the way of your happiness. Fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a professional tailored to your needs. And if you aren't satisfied with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time free of charge. Visit BetterHelp.com Latino to get 10% off your first month. Get the help you deserve with BetterHelp. Hey there, podcast listener. How you doing? So listen, thank you so much for listening to Latino USA. And we'd like to better understand who is listening and how you're using podcasts. So would you do us a favor and please help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey, all one word. It takes less than 10 minutes. And you know, it really, really helps support our show. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. Now, here's the show. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, how a small community outside of Boston has become a coronavirus hotspot. Most everyone knows that New York City is the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic. But the state with the third most coronavirus cases after New York and New Jersey is Massachusetts. And as the curve appears to begin to flatten in New York City, it's a place that the federal government is now becoming more concerned about. Massachusetts remains in its surge, with cases topping more than 54,000. Death notices stretching 21 pages in the Boston Globe reflect the growing number of victims in the battle against COVID-19. And just across from the Mystic River from Boston is a city that has the highest per capita rate of infection in the state of Massachusetts. It's the city of Chelsea. Part of the issue is that Chelsea has a large immigrant population. This Mass General Clinic is now testing everybody with symptoms, and they are stressing you don't have to be a patient here, you don't need health insurance, and they will not ask your immigration status. Now, for generations, Chelsea's residents have been primarily Latino, Latina, or newly arrived immigrants who commute into Boston to work. The outbreak of coronavirus there is more than twice the rate of infection than Boston. Julio Ricardo Varela is my co-anchor for our politics podcast, In the Thick, but he's also a reporter based in Boston. And he's here with me today to give us a portrait of what's been happening in the city of Chelsea, right outside of Boston. Hey, Julio, welcome back to Latino USA. Hey, Maria. So, Julio, most people, you know, they, they have a sense of Massachusetts. They know Boston, but not a lot of people know anything about this city of Chelsea. So, Where is Chelsea? What's its relationship to Boston? And who lives there? So I've been living in the Boston area since 1986. And if you pull any Latino in Boston, everyone up here knows that Chelsea is the city, right? It is the city of the Latino immigrant. And it's mostly Central American now because these families initially came to Boston, to the Boston area to escape the Civil War right in the late 80s and 90s. So there's been a strong Central American presence and that's continued over the years. And I like to call Chelsea like this classic working class city. Families, they live in these places that we call up here triple deckers. 
And basically a triple decker is essentially a three floor building, right? With an apartment on each floor. And Chelsea is right now 66% Latino. And it's also important to note, right? It's only about 1.8 square miles in radius. And it's literally on the north of Boston, northeast of Boston, right over the Tobin Bridge, uh, which is over the Mystic River, right? And about 40,000 people live there. So, you know, 40,000 people, 1.8 square miles, it's pretty dense, right? There is a significant undocumented population in Chelsea, and many Boston residents may have never been to Chelsea, right? And yet it's this city, Chelsea, that really keeps Boston running in a lot of invisible ways. If you've ever taken a flight out of, um, out of Logan Airport, the jet fuel that your flight used came from Chelsea. This is Roberto Jimenez Rivera. He's a Chelsea school committee member. He's an elected official. He told me a lot about like how important Chelsea is to Metro Boston's economy. If you've you know, bought groceries, any kind of produce, your produce probably came through Chelsea. And then the last bit is um, salt storage. So all of the road salt that's used in the greater Boston area is stored in Chelsea. If you come by, you'll see two gigantic mountains of, uh, of road salt just sitting on the, um, just next to one of our main roads. That's kind of Chelsea. It's a, it's a place where the people who live here kind of help the economy continue to run. Chelsea's this classic immigrant city that fuels the larger, bigger city like a Boston. And recently that really hit home with me when my friend Marcela Garcia of the Boston Globe actually broke the story about what was going on in Chelsea during COVID-19. It feels like, um, if I have an image, these are cities like Chelsea, which, you know, most people are just driving right past. You're going a little bit deeper in painting this picture. And now what we do know federally, right, the CDC data is showing that Latinos and African-Americans are overrepresented in COVID-19 cases. So what does that have to do with the high numbers that you're seeing in Chelsea? So coronavirus has hit Chelsea really hard for a lot of the same reasons that other immigrant communities across the country have been struggling with. And in Chelsea, about 80% of all of Chelsea residents are essential workers, right? So they have to take the buses to Boston to work. There really isn't an expanded transportation system like the New York City subway. So that's part of it. But also Roberto, the school board member, a major issue he points out is that there has been a lack of official information about the coronavirus in Spanish. And for Chelsea residents, that creates confusion. People who are the most marginalized are going to miss out on opportunities. You know, they're going to end up referring back to, you know, random WhatsApp threads that they're on with family and friends. And then they're going to hear something and think like, well, that's that's the information that I have. So then they're just going to act on inaccurate and possibly even harmful information. And in addition to these factors, Chelsea's a place with very little political power. So residents often feel overlooked by state authorities. So one of the voices I had to talk to, because I connected with a lot of my local Boston journalist colleagues, and I said, who are, your, who are the leaders? Who are the people in the know who aren't necessarily elected officials? And everyone's like, you need to talk to Gladys Vega. She's the unofficial mayor of Chelsea. We have hard knuckles because our job is, if people don't come to us, we don't wait for them. We just, I am the executive director. You can see me five minutes you know, from now in high heels with a dress. And you can see me with you know, boots and sneakers knocking on doors. They would say like, Gladys is, you know, 
No tiene pelos en la lengua. You know, there, she is unfiltered. She knows everyone in Chelsea. And so I talked to her about the work that her organization, the Chelsea Collaborative, was doing food pantries, wellness checks, moving people, right? And then she told me this, that residents still need resources and grassroots organizations are essentially doing the role of government in Chelsea. And so she wasn't surprised when the coronavirus started to spread all over the city. One wonder why this pandemic is being compared to New York, right? When we started doing this job in March 7th, we, we began to feed the people in the streets. I wasn't surprised. Our families don't have a chance to go to the hospital. Our families have to three jobs in order for them to get a decent salary of one job. Our families don't have access to health care. And she says, even as help and resources have arrived, there have been issues. For example, the National Guard came to Chelsea to hand out food. And Gladys told me that she knew that the residents of Chelsea, a lot of them would see people in military uniform and they just wouldn't trust them. It's because of Latin American history, Central American history. So she had to really uh, connect with residents and her volunteers. And because they trust her organization, she was the one who was saying, hey, hey these guys are good. They're going to give you food. Everything's okay. The National Guard is the friendly arm of the military. They're all of our friends. You're not, they're not ice Asian. They're here just to give you food. So please take that box. And, you know, that makes sense because Chelsea's population has a lot of undocumented families, families that are also mixed status. And there are a lot of people who live in Chelsea who are still going to work every day. And that means that many of them have to take the bus in order to get to their jobs. And then they get sick, right? They, they Many of them did get sick. By April 27th, they had almost 1,500 cases of COVID-19. So for the people who did get sick, what, what were their options? Like, did you speak to anyone who's tested positive? I did have an opportunity to talk to a permanent resident. Uh, her name was Arelis Lopez. She's from El Salvador. And she told me in Spanish that she started to feel sick about Two, a couple of weeks ago, two, three weeks ago. And this is what she told me about how she was getting symptoms. She would wake up in the morning with like this massive pain in her body as if she got run over by a truck or like she had just run a marathon. She felt like there was a a rag tied around her head really tightly. And that was the pain that she was feeling like almost every day. So Arelis went to a clinic in Chelsea and they told her that she did have the coronavirus. So she asked if they had a test that she could take to confirm. And they said no. They told her there were a few tests, but they were only for people who worked in hospitals or for emergencies. Then she said she still had to go to work. She needed the money. She works near South Station in Boston in one of the big office buildings there. So she did that for a while. She would take the bus. She went to work. Finally, a couple of weeks later, she was able to get tested, right? And she tested positive. So she told me that she had to stop going to work. 
y, y, y la preocupación mía con las dos niñas, porque yo no las puedo cuidar porque yo soy positiva. Mi hija se viene para acá porque es positiva. Ahora el muchacho está cuidando a las niñas, no las puede, eh, bueno, tiene que cuidarlas aunque sea enfermo porque no le quisieron hacer las pruebas. She's not working right now and she's not getting a paycheck. And now her daughter has it as well, and they're both self-isolating together. And she's now fearful for her granddaughters, who are now staying with her daughter's husband. She doesn't want them to get it. Okay, so nationally, we are seeing this shortage of tests. And strategies like the use of widespread testing, for example, in places like South Korea, you know, they've been shown to be super effective in terms of stopping the spread of the virus. So What did the limited amount of early testing mean specifically for the people of Chelsea? People like Arelis who couldn't get tested for weeks and the fact that there wasn't massive testing available. The thing about testing, Maria, that is so clear and having mass testing is that overall, it's going to help doctors and hospitals know where they're going to know where the virus is spreading faster and how it's spreading. And it also helps them plan to contain it And also to treat patients. So testing is everything. And so for many like of these community leaders in Chelsea, the delayed response of healthcare providers, for example, masks, right? Masks, everyone talks about masks. They started getting sent to people around the middle of April in Chelsea. And that's about one month after the outbreak. And when I spoke to Gladys about it, I mean, she started her comment with, esto es lo que me saca la puertorriqueña which means I'm getting my Puerto Rican up. And I'm like, all right, okay. So this is my, uh, mira, esto es lo que me saca la puertorriqueña. So it bothers me so much because this part right here, so people wanted to get tested probably three and a half weeks ago when they were going to the local clinics and they were being sent home. Oh, you're not a first responder. You're not a priority. You have the symptoms. Stay home. You're going to be quarantined but there's nothing you can do. In her eyes, places like MGH, Massachusetts General Hospital, and other healthcare providers and local officials, they didn't respond as quickly to this. Many of these people couldn't self-isolate because they were living in really dense living situations. They didn't have enough food or money to stay home. So it spread to the point where Chelsea, right? A city of 1.8, right? 1.8 square miles. It's the highest rate of infection per capita in the state of Massachusetts. All right, so people do know that Boston has, it's actually a center for super high quality medical care. It's the home of Massachusetts General Hospital, which is known as MGH, And this hospital, like the highest quality, is only a few miles from Chelsea. So what's happening now in terms of the current health response? So I talked to a doctor at Mass General in the headquarter hospital in Boston about their overall response. And I should mention that Mass General Hospital also runs a clinic in Chelsea. His name is Dr. Joseph Betancourt. He's a practicing physician, but he's also vice president and chief equity and inclusion officer for the entire MGH system. He's Puerto Rican. And he told me that he treats about 450 patients, many who have COVID-19 right now. And many, according to him, are from Chelsea. We began to see that between 35 and 40% of our patients at Mass General Hospital who were admitted with COVID were Latino. And that was actually the first alarm that we got. Even before the numbers started trickling in, you know, we had doctors saying, boy, I'm seeing a lot of Latino patients admitted with 
with COVID. And that was the kind of the first alarm. And Dr. Betancourt told me he was worried from the beginning. Like he admitted that the system overall should have seen this coming, especially for residents like those in Chelsea. And when I asked him about the initial response. What happens nationally is that you then need to ration these tests based on a set of criteria that is based on risk. So you're going to say, okay, first we're going to test these individuals who have X amount of symptoms or healthcare workers are exposed. And so gradually what you saw was a, a slow loosening of that criteria as more testing capacity was built here. So testing, according to him, has increased, right? Now the system is learning. And he says that the criteria for testing is loosening, for example. We reacted pretty quickly. Once we realized it was a hotspot, we added Chelsea. So if you had a cough and you were from Chelsea, you were getting tested. So there was a lot of things that they began to institute at MGH that he was a part of. So, for example, they went out into the community and they said that they shared care kits, right, with information in English and Spanish containing soap, had masks. From a mitigation standpoint, from a treatment standpoint, for those non-critical patients, they worked with local officials to take over rooms in hotels to isolate patients. And they kind of became like mini hospitals, like hospitals light, as he said. And also, he made an effort to say, like, let's get our Spanish-speaking doctors leading some of these care teams. Well, so it seems like there is a kind of response that is beginning to get into gear. But the the tenor of the voice of the people who you spoke to, it, it really feels like they're anxious. So how are they feeling now, now that people, it seems, are starting to pay attention to the crisis in Chelsea? I mean, they feel like they're getting noticed, but there is this feeling of anxiety and despair and fear still, right? So it's still a resource issue. Many, many people are laid off from their jobs. They can't work. And like Arelis, they have no income. Arelis says, you know, I'm the one who pays the rent. I'm the one who pays the bills. But now she doesn't have a paycheck. She's waiting for the notification of unemployment so that she can begin to at least apply or begin the process of getting unemployment. And because of the undocumented population, there's a lot of people who are undocumented in Chelsea. They can't even apply for that benefit. And Gladys, she feels it could be too little too late now. This could have been avoided if institutions like MGH, Mass General Hospital, could have advocated more for them. Like when people were asking to be tested. They're MGH. They're globally known. So when they don't cry as loud as they should, for my community, I get extremely upset. Because it's not fair that we lose in life while in the meantime... Other communities are doing the test real quickly, and we were not doing it until like probably a couple of days ago. All right. Well, it's a lot. It feels like the city of Chelsea has just been going through a lot, put through the ringer, like the entire country. But the fact that it kind of has felt invisible makes it a problem. So how is the city doing now? I'm going to frame it as cautious, skeptical optimism. You know, the city is seeing early signs of a possible curve flattening. 
And there's a lot more attention on what's happening there, right? So ever since Marcela Garcia of the Boston Globe broke the story, local media outlets have been covering it. There's more and more national outlets that are covering the story. And there are a lot more resources coming into the city of Chelsea. For example, tests, food, hotel rooms to isolate in. But so far, not many of those hotel rooms are really being used. Maybe it's because people are afraid to, because they might be undocumented. Maybe the people just don't want to leave their family. And in a recent study, which MGH did, where they tested a sample of Chelsea residents, a third of them tested positive for exposure to the virus. That's a big deal. So what it means is that there are a lot more residents walking around who have coronavirus than what the actual numbers are showing. And some of those people are asymptomatic, which means they could be spreading it without even knowing that they're spreading it, right? And finally, for like community leaders like Gladys, they're getting the resources, which is really, really important. But they're still relying on each other, especially emotionally as a community. So she told me about how one resident is in a really tough spot and they didn't just bring her food. They also threw her a little party right outside her door. Le dimos una parranda a una señora. Her mom is in a nursing home. She just found out her mom has the coronavirus and she's not able to go to the nursing home to see her. And if she dies, she's never going to be able to say goodbye. And we took a because she's always like a very happy person. So we did a parranda. We took some instruments. We were at the door with goods, like food and stuff and masks. And we sang with her and we, then we started crying with her. You know, that story of the parranda, to me, symbolizes what Chelsea is all about. It's what I've grown to love about the city of Chelsea. Community helping each other, crying, laughing, dancing, getting through yet another challenge. That's what Chelsea's all about. I mean, I think the bigger picture here, Maria, is that there's so many communities like Chelsea all over the country. And for a long time, they've had to rely on themselves. And they're often neglected or overlooked or made invisible. So with this terrible crisis, to some extent, I think it's the first time we're forced to face these inequalities that have really been around for such a long time. Thank you so much, Julio, for all of your reporting. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Maria. Julio Ricardo Arela is the founder of LatinoRebels.com, the co-anchor of In the Thick, and a reporter based in Boston. This episode was reported by Julio Ricardo Varela, produced by Miguel Macias, and edited by Sofia Palizaca. The Latino USA team includes Luis Treyes, Antonia Cerejido, Janice Yamoca, Alisa Escarce, and Alejandra Salazar, with help from Joanne De Luna and Raul Perez. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fidelholt. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. 
Our intern is Julia Rocha. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, I'll see you on all of our social media. Hasta la próxima. Ciao. Funding for Latino USA's coverage of A Culture of Health is made possible in part by a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Latino USA is made possible in part by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation and the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. The biggest story in the world is a science story. And keeping up with all the latest coronavirus research, it's a lot. So on Shortwave, we translate the science you need to know into short daily episodes. Listen and subscribe to Shortwave from NPR. I'm Maria Hinojosa, and next time on Latino USA, a portrait of Enrique Bunbury, the ever-changing Spanish rock legend who's still going strong after 30 years. That's next time on Latino USA. 